My Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and it's been a long time since I did a game review on this channel, and that's partially because it's been hard to make time to play any new games because of most of the games that I want to play on that are related to Tolkien take a long time, and it's just hard to find the time to do it. Nevertheless, I have finally, and I don't even remember how many Christmases ago I got this game, uh, have been able to play Journeys in Middle-Earth. Now, I have not played all the way through the actual campaign, because this is a campaign-style game, so I'm not going to be commenting so much on the story, but I am going to be talking about the mechanics of the game, the things that I like and dislike about the game, and then... Of course, as I usually do with games on this channel, I'm going to be talking about how does it kind of compare to Tolkien's original story and how does it kind of fit with those themes. So Journeys in Middle-Earth, this is one that my brother got me, like I said, I'm not sure how many Christmases ago now. I think it originally came out in 2019, but I don't think I've had it almost four years. I don't think it's been in my collection that long. But I managed to start playing with my son, who is not really in the suggested age range, but nevertheless, he tends to do pretty well at games, and so we're playing it on the easiest mode. And so I've gotten a chance to play three scenarios so far out of, I'm not sure how many the first campaign is. There's also a, a DLC campaign you can get with just the base set. There's also two expansions that you can get for the game, which also you can get DLC for. So in total, as of right now, there are six possible campaigns that you could play with this game if you get all of the physical expansions plus the DLC. DLC costs $6.99 in the actual store, US dollars. So, you know, that's 21 bucks to get all the DLC plus the the other two campaigns that would go with the other expansions kind of just come free, just like the the base campaign comes free with this. So if you have, you know, the other expansions, in fact, you can activate the other campaigns for the physical expansions that aren't DLC expansion, uh, DLC campaigns for free, but you wouldn't be able to play it without the physical product. So you know, it doesn't matter. So, let's talk about this game. As I mentioned, it is a campaign game. The way the game works is you are playing, you could play by yourself, or you could play with up to five people, and you're each playing a different character, and it's kind of Dungeons and Dragons style in the sense that every time you play, you're going to be playing a different scenario with a different map with different objectives, but over many, many plays you know, sessions, you will play over a larger story and eventually finish that story. And the way that you play will affect how things go later on. So there's a lot of different aspects to that, but one of the key aspects is you can win or lose a single adventure, but whether you win or lose, you will still progress. The loss will have a bad effect on how things continue on in the game. So, for example, you might start the next part of your campaign with a slight disadvantage, or you might lose the assistance of a character who's not one of the playable characters. But 
there's also the aspect of if you move on without having actually completed everything in a map, you might have missed out on some items or gaining some lore. And I'll explain what lore is in a minute, but I'm just trying to give a general overview here. There are things you can miss out on, and there's also a time element to this too. So the game, there's an app that comes with this, which it doesn't come with the game itself, but you, you download it on either a smartphone or a tablet, and it manages kind of like a dungeon master many of the aspects of the game that would otherwise take a lot of time and effort to track either on paper or some other means. It handles the enemies for you. It handles your experience, your items, your inventory, all that kind of stuff for you. And you just kind of use the physical board to do main actions. But the app will also track what's called threat, which the threat will increase every turn in an adventure. And if it ever reaches the maximum point, the game ends. The adventure will end and you have lost. So there's a time element. So you're you will often have to make a choice of do we try to get everything in this particular map or do we finish the adventure to make sure that we don't lose so you may have a time crunch there and that goes to the easy or hard variations of the game in the app you can choose at least for the main campaign the original one three different difficulty levels there is adventure mode which basically says you know it's all about exploring every corner of middle earth and the reason for that is the threat meter increases much more slowly so usually the threat meter is based on how many characters you have the number of unexplored tiles you have plus any threat tokens on the map the adventure mode ignores unexplored parts of the map and doesn't count that towards increasing the threat meter and so you have more time to explore stuff and that's why I'm playing that mode with my son because my son is not you know he may be capable at his age of kind of playing through the mechanics of the game but he's not necessarily going to be the most efficient with his decisions because he's not at that level of thinking strategically yet the other two are just normal and hard and you know it's even in on adventure mode it can be a kind of a difficult game because in combat you do have a very real risk of getting killed but I'll get you know to more of that detail later. So that's kind of the overview of the broad scope of the game. You have these adventures that you're trying to complete, hopefully successfully, to move on and have a better chance of completing the next adventure and so on, and eventually you know come to the end of the campaign. But how does the game actually work? Well, this game, one of the reasons actually that it took me a long time to get this game to the table is that on the surface it looks really daunting because there's a lot of components there's a lot of moving parts there's pieces there's cards there's you know the map pieces there's just a ton of stuff in the box and it looks a little bit threatening to you know anybody who's not played a dungeons and dragons style game before and you know i've played some fairly complex games the war of the ring which is one of my favorite board games ever is a pretty complex game. Nevertheless, this one seemed like it was just going to be kind of a pain to play, and I just, you know, every time I read the rules, I didn't feel like I really had a great grasp on it. And then I watched, and I highly recommend this channel if you're into board gaming and just have a game that you're just curious about and don't want to spend your money on it before you get a good shot of, you know, understanding it first. Uh, watch it play. Well, 
watch it played is that the name of the channel i forget i will put the channel link in the description below because for some reason my mind is blinking now but there's it's a guy who literally just explains how to play a game and kind of shows you as he's doing it on camera so you can kind of get a grasp of it and i watched that and i also watched another um video on the dice tower channel where a couple of the dice tower people were playing a session of one of the expansion campaigns and between those two i realized the game is not as complicated as it seems actually so it's there are a lot of things in the box and there are some complexities to it but it's actually pretty simple at its heart and that made it a little bit easier for me to finally decide to just take the plunge and so i don't even remember how i got my son into doing it. I think I was messing around with it and he was like, ooh, can I play? Which, of course, I don't remember if I was even trying to do that, but I, I think I might have suggested it at least, but he was more than happy to try it because he likes trying new things. So, at its bottom, this game is really about moving around on a map, checking for different things. There will be people tokens, interaction tokens, threat tokens, things to interact with, basically on the map, that are not enemies, and then enemies that you fight. Those are the three things that you do on your turn. You can move, interact, and attack. Those are the basic actions that you have. Moving is really simple. You, if you choose to move, you can move up to two spaces on the map, or one space, or you could move one space and then move back, or, you know, whatever. And interestingly enough, you can interrupt that move action by, you know, you can move one space, interact with something in that space, and then continue your move action after you do that and move one more space. So you can interrupt your own move action, which I think is really handy and cool. The interact action and the attack action are where your main mechanic of this game is going to come into play, and that is called testing. A test is any time you have to use one of the stats of your characters. Each of your characters has five different stats. Wit, Wisdom, Spirit, Agility, and Might. And you can kind of guess what all of those are just by their names. And you're going to kind of Dungeons & Dragons style test whether you pass a particular challenge or whatever... But unlike in Dungeons & Dragons, where you would be rolling, say, a d20 die or some other kind of die that has an, an unusual number of sides for the average player, you're going to be using a deck of cards. And it's not a very big deck of cards, but it will get bigger over time. And the, the way you do it is you have a stat that has a number next to it. And let's say Aragorn has... Wisdom 4, and if you're testing Wisdom, that means you will take the top four cards of that deck, turn them over, and find out if you've got enough successes to pass the test. So the bigger the stat that you have, the more likely you are to pass whatever test it is you're trying to pass. And when you're attacking, your items that you use for attacking, you, there's daggers, swords, battle axes, different things, those items each have a particular stat attached to them, which will show this is the thing that you test when you use this to attack to see, you know, how well you do. So, swords and battle axes use might. So, if Aragorn's might is three and you attack with a sword, you will turn over three cards and see how many successes you get. Now, the way the cards work is there's 
three different kinds of cards, basically, when it comes to making the test. There's success, which is like a little yellow star in the top left corner. There's fate, which is kind of a grayish-green background with a leaf symbol. And then there's cards with nothing in the top left corner. The nothing in the top left corner is just not helpful at all when trying to pass a test. The success is obviously what it sounds like. It's a success, and different numbers of successes can do different things depending on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to interact with something on the map, it may tell you you need this many successes to pass, or it may not give a number at all, and it's, you know, depending on the number of successes, different results may occur. And then sometimes there's even interactions where you have to cumulatively, cumulatively over a few turns rack up a number of successes before you complete that. And that very often will be something like the end of, you know, like the end of the adventure because you're trying to, as a team, come together and overcome some final challenge or, you know, something to that effect. The, you know, that's kind of how successes work. And with weapons, very often there's different levels of damage you can do with different numbers of successes, and they will also have different effects. So there's effects called cleave, sunder, lethal, pierce. All of these have different effects on the enemy you're attacking, and I'm not going to go into all that in huge detail here. Um, but the really interesting thing about it is those fate icons I mentioned, the little gray-green background with the white leaf, those can be turned into successes if you have inspiration tokens. And you can gain inspiration tokens in a number of ways. Very often at the beginning of your player turns, you know, the player's turn, you know, not necessarily the individual player turns, but on the, you know, our, our turn versus the computer's turn, let's say, everybody will get one inspiration. You might also get inspiration for finishing an interaction in a positive way or for defeating some enemies or their, you know, effects and items that can give you inspiration. There's lots of different ways to get inspiration. Each character has a maximum amount of inspiration that they can hold on their card. Bilbo, for instance, can hold six, which is the most. Gimli can only hold three, which is kind of disappointing, but he's also a tank, so he doesn't need quite as much necessarily. So everybody has a little bit of a different level, and when you, you can spin those tokens to create successes out of these fate icons that pop up on the cards. So that's kind of how the card system works. But the interesting thing is, and this is why it makes it more interesting to use cards as opposed to dice, the cards also serve as your skills. So at the beginning of pretty much every turn, you're going to look through a certain number of cards, usually two, and you will you know, pull that number of cards and look at them, and in addition to the success, fate, or blank, they will also have a text at the bottom that says what effect they can have. And you will, what's called, prepare those by putting it next to your player card, and that'll take it out of your deck so that it's no longer something that might be used as a success or fail for a test. But now you can use whatever that ability is at the appropriate moment anytime in the adventure. So different skills do different things. And the way that these are built up, every character has five unique skill cards for themselves. There are six basic skill cards that everybody's going to have in their deck, and they all are the same. And then there are roles. The roles are 
think of them as kind of like classes in a Dungeons & Dragons style thing, but they're not really quite the same. Because it's not like you choose the role of Paladin and that means you have magic spells that heal and you have a really good you know, defense stat and whatever. Rather, these roles just kind of define the way that that character is going to kind of play the game because those skill cards that are unique to that role have different roles you know, within the game. So there's a Pathfinder role, which is really all about moving around on the map and helping other people move around and often come together in the same space if that's necessary. There's a Captain role, which is really good at being kind of generally helpful to all the other players, but more especially when it comes to having attacking possibilities against other bad guys. There's a guardian role, which is kind of the tankish role in the game, so it's kind of like a paladin or knight, I guess, if you're used to that kind of thing. There's a hunter role, which is more just straight up attacking and doing lots of damage. There's also a musician role, which if you if you're familiar with what bards and things like that typically do in RPGs, it's kind of like that. In here, it's more about gaining inspiration and doing other things than a typical bard, but it is kind of like a support type of class. And then there's the burglar role, which is interesting. The burglar role is really good at hiding, and I'll explain hiding in a bit, but it's... Uh, really good at just kind of being on his own. Whoever the burglar is, is good at being on their own and just kind of getting away with things that <laughs> you might not otherwise be able to get away with if you're apart from the rest of the group. Uh, so there's different aspects to each of these roles, and it gets more in-depth than that, of course. Uh, but you'll have, you'll start with three cards, the first three cards of the role that you choose for your character. And between adventures, you can change roles. So in one adventure, I might have Aragorn as the captain, which is what they suggest as his role. But the next one, I might change him to a guardian or a pathfinder. And the reason that this is important is because every time you finish an adventure, you'll get experience. But you'll gain experience for the role that you're playing. And over time, you'll be able to buy more cards from that role as you gain more experience for that role. So you'll be able to put more cards into your deck. And there's cards of different levels. There's some cards that you can buy for 3 experience, some that you can buy for 7, and some that you can buy for 12. The ones that are 12 are successes. The ones that are 7 mostly are fate icons. And the ones that are 3s are nothings. So you can save up and get just more successes to make your deck more effective at passing tests, or you can go for just whatever the skill is on the card. And, like I said, these skills can do a lot of different things, but it's really cool because the way the deck works is you always have to kind of make this decision when you do that initial pull of cards, you get to decide, do I want this in my deck so that I can pass if it's a success, or is it and usually the way this works is, the really good skills have successes on them. So therefore, do I want this in my deck so that I have a success? Or is the skill so good, and do I think I'm going to really need that soon, so that I'd rather have it prepared, make my success rate maybe a little bit less, but have this skill that's going to let me do something really awesome? So that's a really cool aspect to the way that this is done. Now, I mentioned experience can help you get more stuff, more cards for your deck. Right? 
Well, there's also lore. And lore is, I mentioned earlier, something that you can kind of get through doing things within an adventure. Often it'll be, you know, from exploring different parts of the map and interaction points on the map. Uh, you might also get it just for completing the particular adventure you're on. But lore is, over time, what you will use to upgrade your equipment. At the beginning of every campaign, you won't be able to change within the campaign, but at the beginning of the campaign, you're going to choose the equipment you want for your character. And once you pick your character and your equipment, that will never change except for the fact that lore will let you upgrade your equipment over time. So Aragorn is recommended to start with a sword as his weapon, but over time, if you get enough lore, you'll be able to upgrade that into, say, a Numenorian sword. And what that will do is it'll let you know you get more hits out of a success, or it might add uh, an effect, like I mentioned earlier, Sunder, Cleave, Pierce, Lethal, one of those things. It might even let you test a stat other than the base one that it starts with. So, for instance, Aragorn has a, you know, basically a sword, but it tests Might, which is not his best stat. But there's a level 3 sword that you can get which tests Wisdom or Might, and his Wisdom is 4. So you'd be able to test a better stat in using that weapon. So experience and lore are these two things that you can use to better yourself over time. Like I said, you can change the cards that are in your deck by changing your role. Although, there's a simple caveat to that, which is, as I mentioned, each character has five of their own. Everybody's got six basic cards that they're going to have, and then the three of the role that they pick. So currently in the game that I'm playing with my son, I've been playing Aragorn as a Pathfinder because there's only two of us and the captain role just didn't make as much sense to me. Nevertheless, I have earned 12 experience up to the point where we're at, which means I could buy any card I want from the Pathfinder deck. So if, I'm, if I buy a 12-point card at a success, that'll be in my deck for the rest of the campaign. But if I change roles, That'll still be in my deck, but now I won't have the first three Pathfinder cards. I'll have the first three cards from whatever other role I pick. So you'll permanently learn new skills and add those to your deck, but if you change your role, your kind of basic set of skills that you'll have from that will change out for whatever new role you pick. So you can customize your deck very strongly over time. Now, it takes a good amount of time because... You only earn, at least in what we've been doing so far, about four experience per adventure, which seems really slow, but it's not like the difficulty ramps up hugely between. So, and even with only four, you could buy a three cost card. It just wouldn't have any success or fate symbol on it, but that skill might be really useful. So there's those kinds of decisions too. The other cool thing about this game, of course, is the map. The map is very modular. Each map tile has two sides to it, and there's two types of maps. There's the kind of adventure map, and then there's the battle map. And the way the battle map works is it's kind of like you zoom in on a particular area, and it's a much smaller place to run around in because there's only a few you know, spots on this that you can be in, which also allows it to get really granular, and you can add different... Uh, terrain features like rivers, walls, bushes, fire pits, tables, barrels. There's different, you know, different kinds of terrain that you could put into the map when you zoom in at that level. And they all have different kinds of effects. So if you move through a bush, 
you become hidden. And here I can talk about, you know, I mentioned I was going to talk about that earlier. You can hide with different types of characters. There's three kinds of boons that you can acquire in this game. And one of them is hidden, one of them is uh, determined, one of them is emboldened. And each of them have different effects. Hidden, and this is just an example, I'm not going to go through all three of them, but just to give you an idea, if you're hidden and the enemy attacks you, or if you attack the enemy, it will have an effect on how well you do if you discard the fact that you're hidden or how well they do in attacking you. So being hidden can be a huge deal if you're, you know, really hurt already. Speaking of being hurt, in combat you can suffer either damage or fear and you'll turn over cards for that and put those cards next to your player sheet and each character has a different amount of damage or fear that they can hold. Now you also have, you know, armor or other items that will help resist some of that. But if you ever reach a point where you are full of damage or fear, then you'll have to do what's called a last stand. And this is where, you know, this is where it gets kind of fun because uh, what would normally happen is if you take your max amount of damage, you're dead, you're out of the game. In Journeys in Middle-Earth, what happens is you then do a last stand and you have to perform a test based on whatever stat it tells you. And if you pass the test, then you survive. And you may even remove some of the damage or fear that you've suffered, which you know puts you even in a better position than you were. But if you fail, then you're dead, you're out, and you will lose the adventure on... I forget if it's at the end of that round or the next round if you can't complete it before then. So you do have to be really careful. Your character will come back for the next adventure. He's not permanently dead, so I shouldn't really use the term dead. But you will possibly ruin your chance of succeeding in the adventure you're in if you get yourself taken out from damage or fear. So all of that can be really, you know, anxiety-inducing if you're facing a lot of enemies and it's like, well, do I really risk fighting these guys? I'm kind of high on damage already. And each character has a different amount of damage and fear they can take. It always adds up to 10. Just like the stats always add up to 14. They're just distributed in different ways. So, another interesting thing that I guess I could have mentioned earlier is each character, in addition to having five character skill cards, has their own just special ability. So, Aragorn's is, at the beginning of every turn, whenever you take a couple cards, or however many it is, and decide, I'm going to get this one to use as a skill and put the others back, at the beginning of every turn when this happens, Aragorn and anybody near him will actually get to take one extra card. So it increases your odds of getting a card that you'd like to keep, and then you put the others back. And when you put the others back, by the way, you can put them back in any order, on top or on bottom. So if you pull a bad one, it's like, I'll put that one on the bottom so that way I don't, you know, run the risk of just getting an absolute failure when I test. Or if it's a success, you could put it on the top and be like, well, I know my next test is going to get at least one success. So that's a really cool way in which this game is not exactly a deck builder. You do build a deck over time, but it is kind of a deck management game because you're constantly using your ability to run through your deck and, you know, kind of manipulate it to help determine how successful you're going to be in the turn that's coming up, which is really nice. It's it's a lot less random than, say, a Dungeons & Dragons roll a d20 for a skill check 
because rolling a d20, you could hit a 1 or a 20, and it's just random. Whereas with this deck, because the deck is small enough, and you can manipulate it enough, you can have a pretty good idea before you go into something, what are my odds of succeeding? And pretty much every round at the end, you're going to shuffle that deck all over again and start again. And so you're always going to you know, go back to a position of, well, I don't know what's coming up exactly unless I, you know, pull that and put something back on top. But I have at least a decent shot, and it's, you know, there's a certain amount of control you have even over that because unless you just buy tons and tons of cards that are just no success and no fate icon at all, then you at least have inspiration to spend and you can turn some of those fate icons into successes. So... It's a lot less random than a die roll, which I appreciate. As far as the characters themselves, there are six total characters to pick from, and each of them will have on the back of their cards suggested starting items and a suggested roll. And there are reasons why they tell you to pick what they tell you to pick. And so for first-time players, it probably is smart to go whatever they tell you. But you can definitely mix it up. So, for example, Legolas is, you know, kind of best with a weapon that is ranged, the great bow, and there's only one great bow. And so you probably just want to give him the great bow because he's he's got cards that make him useful for ranged fighting and whatnot. But you don't have to. You could give him something completely different. Uh but it's also because he's got really high agility and that's the stat for testing the bow. Uh but you can give him whatever item you want and you can do that to a degree with everybody. Bilbo is kind of an exception because Bilbo he can only hold one hand item at a time, whereas most everybody else can hold two, uh, with the exception that some hand items take two hands. So, for example, the Great Bow, you can't use that with one hand. So you <laughs> it takes up both of your hand slots, Let's you know, if you want to put it that way. Everybody can get one armor. Everybody can get, you know, except Bilbo, can get two hand things. So, for example, Aragorn, he could hold a sword in one hand, but he can also hold a harp in another hand, which is an item that they recommend using for the character that they recommend being a musician. Or it could be a banner, which is what they recommend, which kind of has effects on other people nearby. Or you could even give him a dagger as a secondary weapon. And that way, if you have a really good test, you could do multiple hits on your enemies, which is pretty cool. As a side note, though, I should point out that dual wielding is rarely going to be very effective, partially because there are only three weapons in the game that are single-handed, or let's put it this way, three things that you would think of as weapons. Some of the other items can be upgraded to have weapon effects. Three of the weapons are two-handed, so you can't use more than one weapon with those. Another problem is the the main weapon that might be most easily dual-wielded is the dagger, because there are two daggers in the game, and when you attack, you have to select only one stat to test, and if you want to use two weapons with that attack, the same stat has to apply to both weapons. Dagger tests wit, so you add two daggers, you can test wit once, and potentially get enough successes to make both daggers activate, but... Bilbo is the only character with four wit, and none of the other characters have that much, so it's highly unlikely that anybody else would be able to get it. Problem is, Bilbo can only carry one single-handed weapon. Therefore, as a result, because of the relative lack of stat overlap in single-handed weapon-type items, 
and Bilbo's inability to carry more than one single-handed item, most cases you're never going to be able to successfully dual wield. Theoretically, you could give Aragorn two daggers and he could do okay with it, but it's not going to be as effective as you might think. But it is still a possibility. Now with the expansions, there might be a little more leeway for stuff like that. I'm not sure, but at least in the base set, dual wielding is not as awesome a possibility as you might suspect. So I just wanted to throw that in there. So you could do a number of different things with this, is the point. Now the characters themselves, four of them will be instantly recognizable to anybody who's a fan of Lord of the Rings. There's Bilbo, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. There are two characters who are made up by Fantasy Flight games, I assume, uh, because they also exist in other Fantasy Flight games, the Lord of the Rings card game, which I have not played, but I have seen reviews of it, so I know this character exists. Um, so there's Barovor, who is a human ranger, and then there's Elena, who is a an elven woman from uh, Arid Lewin, I believe it is. And her character, unique character skill cards, are interesting. Uh, and one of the things that is just interesting in general about the character skill cards is, unlike the roll cards or the basic cards, they're just kind of a hodgepodge. None of them seem like, oh, well, this is clearly like pointing in a direction. That's not really how most of those work. So you might think, say, that Aragorn's character skill cards make him more reasonable to be a captain. No, not really. Uh, the reason they think Aragorn should be a captain is probably for some other reason, but the fact that he has his own character skill cards doesn't necessarily point you in that direction. And everybody's character skill cards are like that. Except, you know, there may be a couple that are, you know, that would definitely fit better with this role, but it's not like the entire five character skill cards that each character by default comes with is like, oh, well, that's just like him being whatever that role is. No, it's not that simple. They're usually just pretty unique, and this is something I'm going to come back to later. So, that's kind of a basic overview of the game, and if it sounds like a lot, it really isn't as bad as it seems. Like, go watch, for example, I'll try to find the actual video where Watch It Played does the playthrough of the game, and give it'll give you an idea of how the game works, and it's really simple to grasp once you kind of get it. Uh, but the the only thing that seems complicated is there's a lot of keywords and a lot of rules and a lot of different things, but the game comes with two rule books. One is like, here's how to learn how to play, and the other one is a rules reference sheet. And basically that rules reference is, it has a few pages at the beginning that kind of go over some advanced topics once you've kind of got the basics down, but the vast bulk of that in, instruction manual is... It just gives you a term, and it will tell you pretty much everything you need to know about that term. So if it comes up in your play, just look up that word, and it's in alphabetical order, so it's easy to find, and it'll tell you, here's how, you know, here's what you need to know about this. So if you're like, hidden, what does hidden do? Wait, let me go find that in the thing, and, you know, if you don't remember, just look it up, and you will find out what you need to know. Some of them, the entries will point you to, okay, see this on this other page, which is fine. I mean, it, it, it's not going to take you in a huge, long train of 
finding stuff. It's going to take you right to the one that you actually need to do. So, for example, if you want to know what Sunder does as an effect of a weapon, it's going to take you to the page for modifiers. And all of them are explained under modifiers. So, you know, if you remember that, you can get an easier time finding stuff like that. But the rules reference is really handy because whereas the game does have a lot of rules, you don't have to remember, like, what page was that rule on? How do I find it? Which can be a problem with games like, say, War of the Ring, because the War of the Ring is a big, complex game with lots of moving parts, and there's not the world's best index or something in the instructions that will lead you directly to where you need to go if you're trying to remember a specific rule. You kind of have to remember where it is or find it on your own. This rules reference is extremely useful, and it makes the game so much easier to manage because if you're looking for something, you just go to that word on you know whatever page it is. It's in alphabetical order, and that will tell you what you need to know. So that makes it a lot easier, too. So if you're worried that this game is hugely complex and you're just not going to be able to get it, it's really not that hard, I promise. So that's a basic overview of the game. There's, you know, more stuff to it. You can also get items that are not your starting items that are called trinkets over time. You can get things like, you know, boots, for example, is one that we've already encountered. And these kinds of items will have what are called, uh, I forget the exact term, but basically you'll have a certain number of uses of that item per adventure. And it'll be marked with these little tokens that look like a bag. And every time you use it, you'll probably have to you know, get rid of one of those, and when it's when you don't have any more, you just turn it over to show that you can't use it anymore. And these, like your starting equipment, can even be upgraded over time with lore as you go through the game, so they can improve their effects as well. Um, there's various different bad guys that, you know, the different bad guy miniatures represent different kinds of bad guys, and there's also what can be elite bad guys, which have big better stats, they do more damage, they might have more health, they might have armor, and that's another thing. There's armor, and then there's kind of like magical armor, and you can get around that with different kinds of weapon modifiers. So the way that the bad guys move is completely handled by the app. You don't have to worry about that. The only thing you have to really know is, you know, the basics of how they move. So the app will say something like, this group of enemies moves to, attacks Aragorn, or whoever. And you have to know the rules for how that works. Certain weapons and certain bad guys will have ranged attacks, and that's denoted by a particular symbol that looks kind of like an arrowhead. So the Great Bow is the only real ranged weapon in the game for you, except there is a upgradable dagger that you can actually use as a throwing dagger, so that's cool. Uh, but mostly you're going to be encountering this, unless you're using the Great Bow, you're going to be encountering this as enemies who are shooting at you. So there's all kinds of different small rules that I'm not going to get into here because it's just not the point. What do I like and dislike about this game? What I like about it is the fact that, and I've, I've mentioned this before, the fact that you can get a kind of a Dungeons & Dragons style experience without rolling dice is really cool, really cool I think, because the dice rolling is so random and you, you can't predict what your odds are other than just you know, I need a 16 on a D20, and so my odds are 5 out of 20, right? I mean, 16 and above is a hit. 5 out of 20 is like, that's not very good odds, and it's not, it doesn't really tell you anything 
very useful about your chances of success. Whereas with this deck building type system where you can get more cards to add to it and you can keep track of what cards are in it, like I said, you start with 3 plus 6 plus 5, that's only 14 cards, and you're going through them pretty quick if you're testing a lot in a given turn. So, and of course you can pull more cards out of there to prepare his skills, which I should mention by the way, you can only have four skills prepared. And actually you you will have 15 cards in your deck, because in addition to all those that I mentioned, you will also have to pull one what's called a weakness card, and sometimes events in the adventure will add more weaknesses to your deck. They just do nothing. So, I mean... All they do is make it harder to succeed in the tests, really. That's all they do. But So those can be added to make it even worse in a given adventure, but those will all reset out at the end of the adventure before you go to your next one. So, you know, you can track pretty well what your odds of succeeding are. So if you've played a couple of tests already, and, you know, it's the end of your turn, and now the bad guys are attacking, you can have a pretty good idea of if they attack... Am I going to have really much chance of succeeding at avoiding or preventing some of their damage? Probably not. Or maybe I will, because my first two tests earlier in my turn were complete flops, which means all my good cards have to be at the bottom. You know, you can gauge your odds, which lets you plan out your turn pretty well in some ways, and it it makes it a lot easier than just going up against somebody going, well, I hope I get a lucky die roll, we'll see what happens. Because you could roll a D20 and get a 1 or a 5 or a 3 or 2 over and over and over again and just never get that success. With the way that this game is set up, you're going to get successes. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of when and where. And the inspiration allows you to take advantage of other cards that are not straight out successes, but you have to be careful how you spend those because you may want to save them because if you spend them all on your own turn and then a new bad guy pops up on the map and attacks you out of nowhere, well, now you don't have any of that to spend on trying to succeed in avoiding his damage that he's about to deal to you. So you always have to keep these things in mind. And that kind of goes back to what I said earlier, too, about having to decide, you know, do we want to try to get everything in this map, or do we just finish the adventure because we're running out of time now, and we don't know how long it's going to take to pass this final challenge to get to the next level. So, you always have those kinds of decisions, too. One thing that I find kind of less than ideal in this is the the whole app process behind it. And whenever I first started looking at this seriously and trying to get ready to play it for the first time, I was like, seems like this ought to just be a video game. You know, why does it need to be a board game with an app? It seems like you could just spend 20 bucks on the app itself and do everything within the app, and it's going to be just basically the same game. This just seems like a really expensive you know, add-on to an app that doesn't need to exist. It's just a way of making money for Fantasy Flight. And there is a certain amount of truth to that. Um, if you're playing this game, you might at some points be tempted to wonder, why do I need all this physical stuff when I could just be playing it on my app. And you're more likely to think that if you're playing solo, I think. If you're playing with other people, then I think clearly that's not really the same kind of concern. If you want to play with other people, being able to do it on a table with physical stuff in front of you 
is much nicer. But there is a certain truth to the idea that the app does so many things for you and it, it tracks so much of the stuff. The only things it really doesn't handle is where you are on the map, where the bad guys are on the map. It tells you how far to move them and in what direction. But other than that, it, it's letting you put them on the map. It tells you where to start things. But other than that, it doesn't know where anybody is. It's trusting you to figure that out. And the actual cards, right? So the, it doesn't do the cards for you. All of that could pretty easily be implemented into the app so that everything is handled there. Although I will say, putting all of that into a phone screen would be a little difficult because you have to be able to look at the cards and say, okay, I have these cards available to me when I pull at the beginning of my turn. Which one do I want to keep or do I not want to keep any of them? How do I want to put them back in the deck? So there definitely would be a disadvantage to trying to handle everything in the app. It, it's one of those things where I think it's going to depend on how much of a Luddite you are. <laughs> if you're very, very much like Tolkien and not a huge fan of technology, then yeah, this is going to seem like too much technology in your game. Uh, if you're just... But it's one of those things, I think, if you give it a try, you'll probably learn to kind of get with the program of, okay, I understand the distinction, why this is going the way it is, why the app handles what it does and why I'm doing what I do. Because at the end of the day, what it is, is it's a board game which needs something like a dungeon master. But the app gives you a way of having that dungeon master without having to have another person who's doing that who might rather be playing one of the main characters. So I appreciate that. It's just, it seems weird because it handles so much of the game that at the end of it you're like, Ah, but now do we even need the rest of it? It, it? It's kind of a weird tension. So it's not something that I hate about the game. I just find it a little bit weird, and other people might, you know, depending on your own personal preferences, might not like that kind of thing. Like, if you're really used to playing Dungeons & Dragons with a dungeon master, you might be like, why? This doesn't make any sense. Because somebody in your gaming group might already be perfectly fine being the dungeon master. So, you know, take that for what it is. But I don't think it's a huge deal. Like, if you're just into board gaming generally and you're looking for a good Lord of the Rings game, the fact that there's an app which carries a lot of the weight in this game I don't think is going to ruin your experience. Another thing that I like about this game is kind of what I said earlier about the character skills being really unique and just doing oddball things sometimes. I like that. It's it's not doing like kind of a standard Dungeons and Dragons type of thing where it's like you pick a race, you pick a class, and those determine so much of who your character is. No, Aragorn is not like this faceless human male. No, he's Aragorn. And so... His skill cards represent that. It's these these skill cards that are unique to him tell you something about who Aragorn is, and it fits with his personality, his story, all of that. Similarly with the other characters. Every one of them, they have their character skill cards that are unique to them and which, like I said, don't necessarily put them in a position of, well, clearly Gimli has to be the Guardian because his character skill cards look like Guardian cards. No. The fact that he's a dwarf doesn't make him 
you know, that much more fit for the guardian role. The fact that Legolas is an elf and has whatever character skill cards doesn't make him that much more fit for the hunter role, which is what they're recommended for. None of that is really true. And if you look at, and I mentioned Elena earlier, some of hers, she's recommended to be the musician. So you would think she'd be just kind of this background support character. She's got some pretty mean character skill cards for attacking bad guys. <laughs> and it's, you know, you when I looked at it, I was like, well, dang, this is not exactly what I expected. But that's, like I said, I think this is the cool thing, is it's not... It's taking a lot of inspiration from something like Dungeons & Dragons to make a campaign-type game, but it's not doing the kind of thing that Dungeons & Dragons would do where it just kind of gives you faceless human, faceless class, you know, human paladin, elven mage, or whatever. It's like, no, these are real people who have real personalities, real individualized skills. You know, they're individuals, and that's really cool. The fact that each one of these characters feels like a character and not just a faceless mishmash of a you know race and a class. That to me is really awesome. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. I also I should mention, you know, just in general, Fantasy Flight is really good about this, but the artwork is obviously really good. The component quality is really high. The the miniatures are not painted, but they're very detailed and high quality and you know just looking at them is like, oh man cool you know um there's various bad guys you can get uh, new ones and new characters with the expansions and i don't have any of those but you know you could if you get the whole collection like you eventually have like this mass of toys that all <laughs> look extremely nice uh the other thing that i have to say that i really like about this game is the fact that you can go through an adventure and explore just random stuff and and just in one of the the very first adventure for instance that my son and I played you can interact with tokens that don't advance your adventure in any way but they just kind of tell you more about where you are and you know you get information about the landscape or something like that and that may have an effect like you may gain lore or you may gain inspiration but it doesn't really affect the adventure as a whole but it makes you feel part of the world. You know, it really draws you in and makes you think, I am actually a guy exploring real territory, you know, in this real world that, you know, there's a history to, there's backstory to this, there's ruins. You can explore the ruins and find out, oh, there's a carving over there that you can learn something about and gain something, but not anything concrete. You know, you gain lore, but that's like, it takes... 20-some-odd lore to upgrade even the most basic equipment, and it takes a while to get there. So it's like it doesn't have a huge impact on your adventure, but it's still really cool to learn about all this. The app, in in this regard, is also really good because the app has usually some narration at the beginning of something, uh, but it will also have just a lot of text, sound effects, that kind of stuff. Anytime you advance to a certain point, it'll start telling you, oh, so more bad guys are popping up over there, and whenever they attack, they'll usually have some kind of like, bah, you know, sound effects. But it also has pretty good narration, too, whenever it narrates a few things. So the app very much adds to that kind of sense of, you know, we're in a real world, and it plays background music, of course, which adds to the overall, you know, feel, the atmosphere of the adventure you're playing. 
So there's a lot of different aspects of this game that really go into making it a full-bodied experience. So that's another reason why I don't mind the app so much, because it really does help with that background music and lots of other things. It really just makes the whole thing feel a lot more real. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff, the production quality as a whole, that just people put real thought into this game when they put it together. It's not just like, oh, go through the map, hit your objectives, and be done. If it was that simple, it would still be a fun game, but this is Middle-earth we're talking about. You don't go to Middle-earth to just finish the quest. That's not how <laughs> Tolkien would have done it, and it's not how these people did it. So I have to really appreciate the the amount of effort and detail they put into this. It's really good. Um, and that's kind of my main likes and dislikes about the game. Uh, so now let's wrap up with what I think of in terms of how the game kind of fits with the themes of... Tolkien's Middle-earth stories and, you know, how that gets integrated into the game. And here I think they did a really good job. It's not uh, Lord of the Rings in a box. We're talking about events that transpire between Bilbo's first adventure with the Lonely Mountain and the Lord of the Rings. When between is not clear, but Aragorn is an adult, so uh, given that Bilbo had to have Met, you know, when Bilbo first came through Rivendell, Aragorn would have been 10. This has to be at least 10 to 12 years later than that. Uh, so Aragorn is, you know, an adult, so we know that much. Uh, one of the things that is a little bit weird in terms of matching it up with the lore is the fact that you could play Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, and Bilbo, all at the same time, in a period where none of them would have really been together. And so... That much of it is kind of, it, it kind of makes me wish that they had maybe left out some of the more known characters and gone with more original characters. Of course, the flip side of that is, of course, making up characters is also outside the lore in a sense. And so, but it's not like we don't think that other characters exist. We know that there are other rangers out there that had some role in doing something. So, uh, I think on balance, I think I would have preferred it if we had more original characters like maybe a couple of Dunedain Rangers instead of just the one that we get and maybe uh, an elf from you know Elrond's household like even Eladon or Elro here, his sons, because we don't know what they were doing this whole time, but we know that they spent a lot of time with the Dunedain Rangers. So instead of Legolas, maybe pull in one of them, and that's not even an original character, but it at least fits better with the overall story. So there's that. One of the things that I really like, though, in terms of this whole concept of fitting with Tolkien's themes, is going back to that inspiration and fate thing. The reason I like this so much is because if you really pay attention in Tolkien's stories, very often it is not about just an individual's uh, unique skill or whatever that gets them through. It is often... The case that Providence in some way steps in, lends a hand, and aids the completion of the quest. And this is represented in this game by inspiration and fate. So the fate icons on the cards is like, here is your opportunity for fate to step in and help you succeed where you otherwise might not. And you have to be inspired enough to take advantage of that 
fate taking, you know, taking action in your adventure. And I think that's just genius. I mean, like, whoever designed this game was clearly paying a certain amount of attention because it could have been, you know, this mechanic of using inspiration tokens and the fate icons on the cards could have been named anything and you could have just made it work. But the fact that they used inspiration and fate, I think, shows that they really were paying attention to the source material and understood the kinds of things that Tolkien was doing in his stories. And this is something that I talk about with the War of the Ring. The people who designed the War of the Ring game clearly understand a lot about the story because the cards that get played and whatnot in that game really have a lot to do with the story, how the story works, not just the individual events, but just the the nature of how the whole thing goes together. Same thing here. I think wh- whoever designed this and was, you know, putting all this stuff together really knew what they were d- talking about. They weren't just making stuff up and being like, yeah, you know what, let's make a Lord of the Rings thing game and do whatever with it. It's like, no, they put some real thought and time into how do we take what Tolkien does in his stories and make it into a game that is kind of like Dungeons and Dragons? So whenever they use inspiration and fate, that is, to me, you know, you could see that in so many instances in Tolkien's stories, a character gets inspired or is affected by what seems to be providence and does what they need to do, and that's how they push through what looks like an impossible situation. And I just really love that they did that. The one thing I will say about it that is kind of a negative is the fact that you can build up, for some characters anyway, a lot of inspiration and just spend them like crazy on a lot of different fate icons. Which I think is maybe taking it a smidge too far in in a lore type sense. I understand why they kind of have to do it as a mechanic, right? I get that. But from a purely lore perspective if you're thinking about the way fate and providence works in Middle-earth, it's not like fate is just dealing you out potential cards all the time where you can just be like, well, I'm just going to, you know, dump all my inspiration into this and go and, you know, see what comes. You know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit heavy-handed in that sense, but again, it's a game. You have to have a certain amount of leeway there just like you do in the war of the ring with like when the ints awake and go attack isengard you can't have that necessarily play out exactly like the book because if you did it wouldn't be much of a game right so that that's you know i really like the mechanic as a the way they implement that but it is kind of like okay but like if you really think about it too much it gets to be a little bit cheesy (laughs) uh but that's fine like i said another thing that i think is really cool is and this goes back to each character being unique, each character has unique stats, obviously. And each one is a very different mix of stats. You know, Gimli has lots of might and spirit, and everything else he has is garbage. Barivor, who is a human female, is extremely average. She's got a 3-3-3-3 and then a 2. It still adds up to 14 overall. But, you know, she's just a much more well-rounded, less you know, focused type of character. And I like that because it lends again to that idea of each of these people are characters, not just faceless things. But on the other hand, the way they do it is slightly 
less lore accurate, again, because they have to make it a game, right? So Aragorn has four wisdom, he's got three wit and three might, and then he's got only two spirit and two agility, which seems a little weird to me. Like, when I think of Aragorn, I don't think of somebody who has, you know, the same level of agility as Gimli the Dwarf. And I don't think of him as somebody whose spirit is so weak as to be overcome by really easy, daunting challenges. Nevertheless, I mean, again, this is a game. You can't give Aragorn all fours. <laughs> you know, you, you can't do that because it ruins the game. So... I understand why they had to do what they did. They wanted a character to have four wisdom, and they gave that to Aragorn, which makes sense. Aragorn's, you know, one of his key qualities is his wisdom. Uh, but he's also very powerful, and he's also very not dauntable, and therefore ought to have high spirit. And he also has a certain amount of wit, and it's like, you just can't totally represent all of this in a single character without breaking them. Which kind of goes back to what I said earlier about you know, maybe have characters that are less lore direct and, and add in other characters that are either, you know, minor characters in the books or original characters. And so that's a little bit more believable. So, I mean, that's one of those things where Aragorn is really the biggest example of this, I think, because the rest of them, you can kind of see where they went with it. The other thing I will say, though, on that note is Great Bow being primarily driven by agility makes absolutely no sense. I think actually it makes more sense for a sword to be driven by agility than the, and the bow to be driven by might. If any of you have ever tried to draw a real bow, like, and I'm not talking a hunting bow, I'm talking about a bow that would have been used by medieval soldiers in warfare, those things are heavy to pull. I mean, they're not easy at all. Swords only weigh like three pounds, maybe four if it's a really big one. And so the idea that you need a lot of might to use your sword, mm, no, actually, if you, it, it, I love this scene from The Count of Monte Cristo, the newer version with uh, Jim Caviezel. It's not in the really old version. Uh, it's But the old guy played by Richard Harris in the prison where Edmund Dantes is being held prisoners, you know, just to keep them out of everybody's hair, starts to train him on swordplay, and he says, a stronger fighter does not necessarily win. It is speed. Speed of hand, speed of mind. This is how swordplay works. Generally speaking, you need to be faster and more nimble with your blade, and so it actually makes more sense for that to be agility. I know why they did it! I know why they did it. Because everybody does it this way, and I don't know how it got started, but ever since RPGs have been a thing, swords have always been driven by strength, bows have always been driven by agility, dexterity, whatever. And it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but that's just the trope. It's the way it's done, and so there's probably just no getting around it at this point. Uh, but that's one, <laughs> it's just one of those things, if you really start to think about it, you can nitpick things like that to death. But fine, whatever, it's okay. So... You know, some of the lore type stuff, this is how it goes. And then, but the other thing that I like about the lore is, like I said, the way that they give you kind of backstory on just the region you're in. You will find dwarven carvings or items that were left by some other group of people or 
you know, they've, the fact that they try to pull some of this kind of story-driven stuff into it is also really nice. I haven't got far enough into the story yet to know if the story as a whole is going to be very accurate to the lore. Obviously, the campaign is invented for the purpose of the game, but it, you know, it's so far at least something plausibly that could have happened in between the events of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, other than the fact that we know Bilbo wouldn't have been involved in it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that is also nice, at least so far. Like I said, if I if I had to wait until I finished the entire campaign before I did this, I'd probably be waiting another year before I reviewed this game, so I just didn't want to wait that long. Uh, which is why I may never do a review on the other expansions if I get them, because the only reason to really review them would be to talk about the story, and that's just going to take too long to get through. So, do I think this is like Lord of the Rings in the box? Obviously, it's not Lord of the Rings in a box like War of the Ring, because War of the Ring is about the Lord of the Rings story. Do I think this is Lord of the Rings world in a box? Kinda. I mean... There are a few issues here and there, but I really do think that the people who built it, put it together, designed the system, the play, everything about it, really took their cues from Tolkien's writings in a significant way, with obvious modifications as needed to make it a real playable game, but they made it in a way that any good Tolkien fan could look at this and go, you know what, man, I kind of feel like I am in Middle Earth, this is cool. And so that is part of the reason why I love it. You know, I've only played three adventures so far, and I'm really looking forward to getting more in as I have time, which is not always easy. But I really like the fact that I can feel like I'm really playing a role in a Middle-Earth adventure with, you know, characters that I could pick, you know, and maybe I'll even... You know, I, I, I think every now and then about playing the thing solo just so I can play through it a little bit faster, but when am I going to find time to play this thing solo? <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, but I'm really tempted to do it because I really want to get through this story and I really want to experience more of it. So, And I also really want to experience it with more players. And I have current plans to play with my brother-in-law and his two sons who are older than my own and hopefully get a, an experience of four players playing this game to really get a feel for how it plays out differently with that different character dynamic. You know, two versus four. It's, I think it's going to make a big difference because with two, and you're trying to explore a whole map, you have to split up and do a lot of stuff on your own. Whereas with four, you can have groups of two and two, you know, and I don't know what that's like yet. And so I'm really looking forward to that. But the thing that really pulls me in, and this is this is why I love War of the Ring, and why a game like, say, Lord of the Rings The Confrontation can sit on my shelf for a long time and I don't necessarily think about it, the reason I love this game and the War of the Ring is because the theming comes through so well that it really does kind of pull me in and go, okay, Middle Earth, that's where we are. We're in Middle Earth. And that's not to say that the theming in, say, The Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation is non-existent. It's not. The theming is there, but it's, it's, you know, it's an abstract game with theming that is just kind of implemented into how the pieces move, and that's really it. So it's not the same as, like, trying to live the Middle-Earth experience. This 
if I was to kind of give a comparison, I would say that while War of the Ring is like the 60,000 foot view of, you know, the Lord of the Rings story at a really far out, zoomed out, you know, and just kind of seeing it all happen, this is characters in Middle Earth zoomed way in, like you're in the woods with them doing their individual adventures and seeing how things play out. So it's a very different level of how close up you are, if you want to put it that way. But I think it's equally good at representing how something like this in Middle-earth would actually happen. And so I have to say, if you're into this kind of game at all, I highly recommend you give it a try. Uh, like I said, you could go watch the videos that have been done on it. There's tons of videos out there on reviewing it and whatnot, but you can, you know, watch it actually be played. I'll link to some of the videos that I've watched that I found really helpful. Uh, but, you know, give those a try. Watch the videos if you're interested in this, just to get a better feel for it. And then, and, and I will also say, as far as that goes... Don't necessarily think that just because you're looking at this and it seems like they're just doing a lot of rote repetition and, you know, kind of talking what through their, what they're doing, don't get the sense that just because it seems like they're just doing a lot of the same thing over and over again, that it's going to be boring. Because it, it can give that vibe if you watch some of these videos of just somebody playing the game. It's not quite like that. It, it looks more boring than it actually is because when you actually get into it, you're having to make decisions and really think about, okay, how do I want to do this? And, you know, all this other stuff that makes the game a lot more interesting than just, oh, shuffle cards, play cards, shuffle cards, play cards. If you just did that with any game, it would probably look boring. Watch the videos specifically with the intent of understanding this is how the game works and is it something that I could get into that's not overly complex. Don't watch it with the idea of, does it look fun to shuffle cards, play cards, draw cards? Because <laughs> if you watch the videos with those kinds of things in mind, you're going to come away with it with the wrong, wrong impression by far. So don't, you know, just watch the videos with that in mind. But do watch them if you're interested, but not really sure if you're ready to take the plunge. This is not a cheap game, and it's not a game that you can bring out easily and play in like 30 minutes. Each adventure is probably going to take you an hour or better. So it's not something that you can just bust out and play and be done, and you know it also takes some setup and some packing up. So it's not like a really easy thing to play. But if you have the kind of time and the inclination to play a game like this, watch those videos, get a good sense for how it plays, because that helped me a lot. And... You know, if, you, if it looks like something that you might be interested in and you think, yeah, I could have the time and yeah, I could, you know, get into that kind of a thing, do it. Because trust me, once you start, it it's a lot better than you think it might be and it really does pull you in. It's a really, really immersive experience and it really does capture a lot of what the, you know, the Tolkienian themes that we all love. It really does... All of that very well. Better than I would have expected, to be honest. Like, I was like, this is going to be a cool Dungeons & Dragons style game. Yes, it is. But it is so much more than that. It is It is not just like Dungeons & Dragons ported over with slightly different mechanics. It is, they really took their time, chose their, you know, 
chose the way that they did things in a way to really bring out that Lord of the Rings feel. So I really think for huge Lord of the Rings fans, this will be a winner. So do check out, you know, see if you're going to like it, pick it up if you think you might. Because if you think you might, you probably will. So that is my review of Lord of the Rings, Journeys in Middle-Earth. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, I know I went a long while because there's just so much to talk about with this game because there's a lot to it. But if you did enjoy it, please do leave a like, uh, share it around, check out those other videos. And if they're helpful, give them likes too because they're great content creators as well. Uh, Check out my description below also for, of course, the support links and the social links and the other platform links. Subscribe if you want to catch more of my content. Click the bell icon if you're on YouTube to make sure you don't miss any notifications. Follow me on Twitter for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all my channel supporters, especially Elf Friends PA Brew News, Nathan Dufour, and Paul Leone.